welcome. And uh, let's open with prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that uh, you have gathered us together again to study your word. We continue uh, to ask that you would bless us uh, with the wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit, that as we study your word, you strengthen our faith and that you would lead us to be conformed to the image of our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we are looking at Acts 15 uh, last time, Acts 15, and uh, the deliberations of the so-called Council of uh, Jerusalem, and uh, the decision uh, that was pronounced by James, the brother of our Lord, and now we are going to um, uh, continue now uh, from that point. So the discussion has come to a close when James, sitting in the chair, has uh, pronounced his opinion, and at least there's no record of anyone objecting, and so uh, we simply come to the uh, official conclusion, uh, the so-called apostolic decree, it's a bit of an overstatement, since it's not, it's not as formal a thing as that, and James, strictly speaking, isn't an apostle, but it's, it's often referred to as the apostolic decree uh, coming from the Council of Jerusalem, uh, beginning at uh, 22. So if we could begin, please, with someone uh, reading us for us uh, from 22 to 29. Yep. Yeah, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent you Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these commandments, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep the, yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Thank you. Nice and concise. So there is your uh, apostolic decree, the outcome of the Council of Jerusalem. I just quickly note that those terms are used by biblical scholars, I think, as, as a term of convenience. We should not uh, read into such uh, labels any, any sort of much later church history with uh, church councils and, and uh, canons of council and so on. Uh, but nevertheless, this is the, the communication of the official uh, outcome of the discussions. Um, it seemed good to the apostles and the elders. Again, a reminder, there are apostles there, and then there are those who are considered to be uh, leaders of the church, not on account of their apostleship, but simply on account of them being uh, uh, chosen, appointed, elected, uh, whatever method was used to be the leading uh, men of the church. And they chose uh, men from among them. This is a, a, an important fact, a factor that we uh, don't necessarily uh, associate with letters, but uh, they didn't have uh, royal mail or imperial mail in those days. 
So letters were generally, especially important letters, they were transmitted in person uh, by a personal courier. Uh, and the way that this worked wasn't just a convenience of, you know, John is, on, is going to travel from A to B. I need to get a letter from A to B, so I'll ask John to take it. But especially with official communications such as these, they would be sent, the, the envoy, the, per, the letter carrier, would be considered the personal envoy of the letter writer. And they would go with the letter and, uh, if necessary, with further instructions or, if you like, a, 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 um, would be prepped by the letter writer uh, about the content of the letter. They would deliver the letter, quite likely read it out to the, uh, especially letters like this, which are... Um, uh, were to a group of people, to a congregation as opposed to an individual, uh, and then would be at hand as the kind of official uh, spokesperson of the sender. So that if there's something in the letter that isn't clear, uh, then the letter carrier envoy would then be the, the or if like the person who had the authority uh, and the expertise uh, to make clear exactly what the letter stood for. This is why... Uh, Names are often mentioned at the end of the letters of the apostles also. Uh, names of the, uh, the scribe often come, but also there are characters or names in the letters of Paul and of Peter, especially, um, who are almost certainly the letter carriers. So I have, I, I can't prove this. Nobody can prove this. Uh, but I, I have my, my theory is that the letter to the Colossians, for example, was carried by Onesimus. And Onesimus carried a second letter, which is the letter to Philemon. And these two things go together. Uh, and so Onesimus is, and therefore is, is, is mentioned in the letter. Likewise, almost certainly the letter, the Rome, letter Paul said to the Romans was carried and, uh, by Phoebe and so on. So there are these sort of characters. This is, this is an important role. And this is, you see that they chose two men, Judas and Silas. Does anyone remember by what other name Silas is known? In the Silvanus. New Testament. Silvanus, yes. So usually he's referred to both in letters of Paul and of uh, some of the letters of Paul and in the letters, letters of Peter and by his Roman name, Silvanus. And so we have Judas and Silas. Now, as a letter carrying team, what can you tell me about that particular combination? Is Judas um, the apostle, but not Iscariot? No, this is Judas Barsabbas. Oh, right. Okay. Or is a different Judas again? I guess it was a popular name. Yes, because he, he was just a, he was basically Judah, who was one of the uh, one of the twelve patriarchs. Yeah. Judas and Silas is a combination, then, or Silvanus. So they're leading men amongst the brothers there. Oh, we know Silas, for example, was very close to Paul, and after Paul's uh, disagreement with Barnabas, uh, he became uh, uh, he became Paul's kind of a regular companion on his uh, on his missionary journeys, and he mentioned he's mentioned in several letters, and of course he was leading also then associated with Peter later on and made it. So yes, we don't know very much about Judas at all. Is it that one of them was some Jewish background, another one was some Greek, was a Greek speaker? That exactly. Once clearly, one has a Jewish name, one has a Roman name. Now, those we are—they're sending, if you like, one of each. 
to the church in Antioch. And you remember the church in Antioch is a mixed Jewish Gentile church, as are the churches in uh, Cilicia, where uh, Paul has been uh, on his first missionary journey with Barnabas. And so, uh, but this letter is addressed to the Gentiles. In other words, the Gentile contingent of the church. And so by sending out a Jew and a, uh, kind of somebody from a Jewish background, another one from a Greco-Roman background is, is very wise because then it can't be seen to be either, you know, uh, if you send only a Jew, it could be like that this is, you know, dropping, dropping high dictates from on high, uh, to the Gentiles. If you send only a Gentile, then the Jewish, those who are opposed to the inclusion of Gentiles, uh, with our circumcision could kind of see that this is this is kind of like a, a a special arrangement and it doesn't have the authority whereas if you send a Judas and Silas together a Greek or put, uh, put in a Roman and a, and a Jew then it's like this is it represents both uh constituencies in the church if you like so it's it's a very wise uh move uh, just simply from a point of a, dipl- a diplomatic point of view Judas called Barsabbas uh, there's another Barsabbas Anybody remember? (laughs) Sorry? You sighed then as if to say nobody's going to remember this. (laughs) It's such (laughs) an important (laughs) point. Nobody's going to know it. Are they not? (laughs) I don't know it. Maybe others do. Um, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was the other candidate for the 12th seat of the apostle, uh, which uh, went to Matthias. So there were two... uh, and uh Joseph Corbatab, this is in Acts one. Uh he was also known as Justice. But we don't think that he was the same man as you know, he was known as Justice, which was his sort of uh Roman name. Joseph was his uh Palestinian name or uh, Aramaic name. Uh we don't I think there's any reason to believe that uh Judas uh called Barsabbas was also the same as Joseph, because he he wasn't reckoned uh, he wasn't uh um named such earlier on. Uh, Barsabbas, not sure, we're not entirely sure what that is for, because of course the, the, almost all the names in the New Testament are given in an Hellenized form. In other words, they, they're not transliterated exactly because, uh, Greek lacked many of the sounds that uh, exist in Hebrew. Um, and so they can, they, they all always come in a slightly Greek form. Uh, so Judah becomes Judas and so on. And Barsabbas, uh, Probably wasn't exactly Bar Sabbath, but it, one possibility is that it's a nickname that is some like son of the Sabbath. Uh, but who knows? <laughs> Answer if nobody knows. Um, so these two are sent, leading men among the brothers. And then comes this letter. Um, and so it's, it's from the apostles and elders. So it's, it's, it's from the whole assembly, if you like, of the, of the, or the leaders of the gathering in Jerusalem. And it says both the apostles and the elders. Again, they're constantly, you know, they, the emphasis is constantly on, uh, if like the unity and one, unity of the, uh, of the church and the oneness of the view or the, of the teaching. So this is not a personal, uh, uh like a, a personal or a factual view. Just give me two seconds. Sorry. Uh, 
phoning up the violin practice just in case. Some indoors. Lovely as it is. Uh, and so, yeah, so the oneness of the UC is not, this is, this is not the view of the Jewish Christian or the Gentile Christians or the apostles as opposed to the elders or this, but, but it's, it's all inclusive and this is very important in gaining so that it gains acceptance. But would it also, I mean, I, I would think that there were still, um, some of the Jews, um, of the similar opinion of those who went to Antioch to confuse there that they were, but they were willing to learn from, from what was said that they, they were of the same accord then. They agreed. Or they were overruled, more likely, because the, oh. the this is the, the impression given earlier on is that the, You've got the whole church of Jerusalem because the, the, uh, the original people went down to came from Jerusalem. So you get the impression that you had a gathering, which is the whole church in Jerusalem, the apostles, whichever apostles were present and the elders of the church. This letter is from the apostles and elders, not from the whole church. So it's quite possible that the, those who were, uh, of the other opinion were simply overruled because we know that this problem did not go away. Paul in his subsequent letters uh, still has uh, to contend uh, with this issue. It doesn't, doesn't disappear. Um, so let's look at the language first of all. So we said um, the greeting, a typical greeting, the brothers but the positive, say the, the typical Greek letter would be from, from X to Y greeting. And guess what they do? Exactly that. Um the uh, Greek word for greetings in this sense is hire, which literally means joy. Uh and uh Paul, this is where Paul and the the, the apostolic greeting that, that we're getting apostolic letters uh is uh if you like a, a play on that, because the Greek word for grace is charis, so it's almost the same sound. Hire charis. So instead of saying greetings, they say grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ or some such thing. Um and so it's just a, a little footnote there. You don't really need to know that, but it just say so this is, this is how all the apostolic letters begin, uh, substituting grace for the word greetings. Now see, see the important move in 24. We have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction. State the obvious somebody. What, uh, what's the purpose of this sentence? They're lying. <laughs> the guys that came to you before, they were wrong. Okay. So making what, stuff up. Yeah. So why, why is he saying this? Um, so, um, what, um, what was said to them before when Paul and Barnabas and who else was there? James? When they were there, and what Peter. was said, and Peter, when, what was said before? Um, was reiterated by the people at Jerusalem. Yeah, and it's kind of it's they they are very deliberately uh, distancing themselves uh, from that, so that there can be no. It is completely unambiguous. They they completely um, disavow this the idea that this is somehow official or coming from the leadership. So the, the idea is to cut, basically suck all the air out, all the oxygen out from any, any notion that this is, is somehow official church teaching in Jerusalem. Remember that Jerusalem is the original congregation. It's the, 
you know, Jerusalem congregation, they were there on the day of Pentecost. This is, this is the mother church. And so they, they accused these whoever's come as having come in their name, claimed to speak for them when they did no such thing. And of course, the issue, the, the point here isn't that the view that they represented was definitely heresy and false, but rather that they had no authority. Because the decision about what is right and wrong is only being made after this. In other words, it forced the point. And now, here's a little, uh, a, a little, um, uh, it's like a church historical reflection on this. A very, very significant portion, proportion of what we consider central Christian doctrine has been formulated in response to challenges. Christology, for example, if you take any any kind of uh, dogmatics textbooks, which tend to be very thick, and you look up the section of Christology, it takes up a huge amount of space. If, you know, like I have a three-volume about, I don't know, I haven't checked, but about 900-page, 1,000-page Christian dogmatics on my shelf just over there, and uh, more than a half of volume two is taken up by Christologists. Well, no, I see it with response to so much... Um... Well, that's where it began. The Nicene Creed onwards, that there were challenges. You know, if you look at the writings before Nicaea, by highly uh, respected and honoured church fathers, they sometimes say things that post Nicaea sound really off, because the issue hadn't become an issue yet. So you could speak carelessly about things that weren't controversial. Then, when somebody comes along, like Arius. And begins to challenge, uh, Christological teaching. All of a, all of a sudden, you are forced to say, start expressing yourself far more carefully. Think about, hang on, if I say this, how does that play out given this controversy? And so all of a sudden, things that weren't, were kind of just taken for granted became a big issue. Uh, the Trinity. The reason why we have a doctrine of the Trinity that's very, uh, detailed and, and, and complex is partly because it was denied. Look at the second century church fathers. They don't, they are blissfully unaware of this problem. So they, you know, in retrospectively, because there were some of them right, like there's not a trinity, but a binity. They just talk about Jesus, the Father, the Father, God the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit barely gets a word in because it hadn't become an issue yet. But once it has become an issue, you can't then roll back. You then have to, if you like, nail your doctrine to your mast and, and stand by it and be careful. And this is how most of our kind of central, essential points of Christian doctrine have actually come to be carefully defined. Um, doctrine of justification, doctrines of the sacraments and so on. All these things have been responded <coughs> to, to a very significant degree have been responses to challenges. And that's just how it is. It's, it's neither good, good nor bad. And and but this is the, one of the earliest examples of that. So they've been merrily baptizing people. Then they started merrily baptizing Gentiles. And somebody comes along and says, "Hang on, there's something missing." And they, the whole church has to stop and say, "Well, what do we do with this? Nobody's thought about this before because it wasn't an issue until now." And once it's been thought, it then say, "Okay, now we have to be more careful." Now this is what it is. This is how uh, how it's going to play out. And 
And this is how it kind of incrementally. There's no incrementally doctrine gets more carefully defined. I would be, I would advise you very strongly to be uh, cautious of anyone who claims that there's such a thing as doctrinal development. What I mean by doctrinal development is that somehow there are things that nobody knew and didn't exist and, and the Holy Spirit decided to wait till 1627 to reveal them to the church or 1935. When the evangelical, so-called evangelical Lutheran church in America, you remember the joke, neither evangelical nor Lutheran, not really a church, but definitely in America. Um, when they, they decided that they would start blessing and, and conducting same-sex marriages uh, about a decade ago, this, the um, theme for that particular church gathering was, um, behold, I'm doing a new thing, a, <laughs> taking scripture out of context. And the implication was that, you know, until now, this wasn't right or true, but now it is. God's doing a new thing. Um, however, the kind of doctrine development that does exist is that things are brought into focus and we grow in our understanding and the detail, I feel like the detail gets colored in. And so as, as you go through the history of the development of doctrine through church history, you find that things becoming more and more refined and there are questions that get raised and therefore have to be answered. And then there are other times when those things just kind of fall up. There are controversies that rise up, which are really big in their time, and they kind of cease to be controversies. Nobody these days of any significance argues about uh, circumcision anymore. It's just not an issue. Got solved, it got moved on. But we don't go back to saying it doesn't matter anymore. We know that it doesn't matter, but it's just not an issue anymore. And this happens with other things. too. And I suppose the further away in time we get from the very early church, the harder it is to do what they did there, which was to get everybody together and hammer it out, because there are so many different branches of the church and so many so many people that do believe that um, same-sex marriage is okay. Yeah, I mean, it is difficult to, um, in various ways. I mean, the, there are seven so-called ecumenical councils in the history of the church. Um, and in, and the idea of ecumenical council is that it, the whole church was pre- represented, uh, which is a really nice, pious thought. It was never the case. And the first ecumenical council is the council, the first council of Nicaea, which gives us a Nicene creed. I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I think there's one bishop from the western half of the church in there. All the others, there were Eastern bishops. The Bishop of Rome sent an envoy, but he wasn't actually personally present. And he was, by then, recognized to be kind of the first among equals in the church. Um, and the last ecumenical council, uh, you know, half a millennium later nearly, it was a purely Eastern affair. And so, you know, even then, getting, you know, the fourth century, trying to get representation from North Africa, from Syria, from Armenia, from Rome, from uh, uh, Gaul, Spain, just wasn't possible anymore. Same thing happened within Lutheran Church. I mean, the Lutheran Church has the Book of Concord. In the, it was still possible in 1580 to get all the virtually all the Lutheran churches in Germany together and to agree a doctrinal formulation of the issues at hand. I was at a conference about 10, 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago when a leading 
uh, American Lutheran pastor was arguing that we could really do uh, with a, a new kind of addendum uh, to the Lutheran confessions dealing with controversies of our time, including women's ordination, abortion, you know, things that are, are kind of dividing us today. And of course, you know, you know, good luck with that simply because there are, depending on how you count, up to 70, 80, 90 million Lutherans on lots of different continents and trying to get any, you know, quarter of them to agree on anything at all would be a real, <laughs> you know, it'd be a real victory. Uh, you know, the, the church is dispersed in that sense, which is why it's important that we constantly keep re- referring back to scripture because that, that, that's fixed and read things. I mean, there's a very wise, um, essay, uh, one of the, um, second generation Lutheran theology, the, the leading Lutheran theologian of the second generation, Martin Chemnitz. He was really instrumental in putting together the book of Concord. And in his uh, lectures on, on Christian doctrine, he had, a, he has a, uh, like an introductory essay on how to read the fathers. And he makes this point that, you know, some of the really, uh, um, the, the great fathers of the church often spoke carelessly about things because they, they hadn't yet got to the point in church history where these things really mattered. And therefore we must always read them critically. And you could say that about anything that's been written between, between the book of Revelation and today. We always read them critically in the light of scripture. And also we can see as we, as we said, this is why church history matters. Don't mean that everybody should read church history, but certainly understanding how doctrine develops and what the kind of main turning points at least of church history are. Because we see where things come from. We start tracing things back. I mean, I, I mean, in me, I, I hear this all the time. I was in a meeting just last week where, you know, somebody, somebody said, you know, I, I've been in the Lutheran church for oh, however many tens of years and I have never come across X. Um, which is the sort of thing that I hear quite often. Uh, and my, 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 if, if, if I were to respond, I didn't at the time, if I were to respond, my kind of response would be, so what? <laughs> you know, the Lutheran Church being the ELC, we're talking about a tiny dot in a very large denominational, on a very large denominational map, map, which in itself is quite a small subsection of the map of Christianity today, let alone Christianity through history. And so we are constantly, we have to look at ourselves and say, you know, why do we have this? That has been like this all my life doesn't really tell me anything where does it come from how old is it you know if, if it was instituted the year before i was born i would think that this, it's always been the case because i know nothing else but that's not really a particularly helpful a yardstick for anything so so this kind of sorry we're kind of wandering off the text now but well i've wandered off the text that's my fault but um you know this is this is you know this understanding of where these things come from and how what brings them about is really important um, and, and, and appreciating, if you like, the, the way that God works, not just through the, if like the triumphs of the church, but also through the challenges and, and difficulties and failures of the church to bring to light the meaning of his word, um, is, is something that we ought to appreciate. Is that enough on that topic? I could carry on by anything other particularly beneficial. No, there's plenty to chill on there. Good. Should we get back to this? So, they've sent Barnabas, sorry, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, so they're claiming now unanimity, 
to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a very, it is a very strong endorsement of the ministry of Paul and Barnabas, because of course the, the, uh, the stirring in Antioch is a direct challenge to the ministry of Paul and Barnabas, who've gone and baptized Gentiles without uh, circumcising them. And again, the timing, you know, the exact dating of this is a little bit uncertain, uh, but there's a very good chance that by this time, Paul has already written a couple of his letters, uh, possibly has written some of his letters already, where he is becoming very clearly opposed to any idea that Gentiles should become Judaized in order to be, um, be full Christian. Would you, pay, would you bear with one other footnote, by the way? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just a hobby horse of mine, really, or pet peeve, if you want to call it that. Um, it has become very, very common um, to start using the verb to disciple, discipling, and discipleship as the process of being discipled, which is the idea that first somebody becomes a Christian, and then they're discipled. Uh, and I know it's not necessarily anything other than what we call catechize, catech- you know, catechesis, in other words, teaching. But this idea that there's a kind of progression. You first become a Christian and then you get discipled, you become a real Christian kind of thing. I, I don't mean, I don't suggest that anybody's actually saying that, but there's kind of, that's a really... Do. do you think? Yeah, I, I think so. We, the idea is some churches, they talk about, yeah, you can be a Christian or you can be a Christ follower. You're not just a pew walker. Okay, well, thankfully I haven't come across that. Um, but, you know, this idea that, you know, there's a, there's a kind of basic level Christian and there's a disciple who's been discipled. And this sort of passage, all of that, this is not what I view, but this whole issue of, um, baptized Gentiles, do they need to be circumcised really to be fully Christian is the sort of analogous sort of thing. Being Christian is very much a, an on off switch. You either are or you ain't, and there's no, middle ground and it's it's both true as a as a warning uh but also as a comfort you're a christian you're a christian now can you grow as a christian should you be more knowledgeable as a christian uh should you uh repent of the works of darkness still cling to you yeah probably but you're a christian if you are baptized and you believe in jesus and that's it and there's no other kind of there's no second stage which gets you to another level you don't have to speak in tongues you don't have to be circumcised you don't have to get uh, gone through uh, some sort of discipleship course or any other thing at all anyway that was just a little footnote um <clears throat> so the same barnabas and paul many who have risked their lives for the name of our lord jesus christ there's an endorsement both by them and the witness of their actual life um they're kind of uh uh a kind of partial, the, this is their martyrdom. Martyr, martyr, the word martyr comes from the, uh, the Greek word, which means witness. A martyr is someone who bears witness. And so Paul and Barnabas have, be, have been martyrs, witnesses for the, uh, for the name of, uh, for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by risking their lives. And that is why they've sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. But there you see this, you know, they are, they are the official spokespersons for what is meant by the letter okay so 
Now comes a very famous phrase. It has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Right? That's confidence. Next time, uh, next time I propose a resolution at our church, immediately our synod, I'm going to say, whereas it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to me, uh, <laughs> therefore be it resolved. Um, how can they say such a thing? Because they are the apostles and the elders. And um, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would bring all things back to their memory. But um, I don't know if the implication is that he would bring wisdom to them as well. Also, mm-hmm. Paul refers to us as, you know, we are co-workers, God's co-workers. So obviously there's been a lot of prayer about this matter as well. So I would think. Yeah. You trust if you if you trusted them to choose um, uh, replacement for Judas by by uh, by a lot, so why not <laughs> this kind of thing? Pray, mm-hmm. Prayer, talking and praying amongst themselves. Yeah. Do they have yeah. a still small voice? That I'm also pretty sure. Yes, you know there is um, you know enough in the scriptures to indicate that this will happen all the nations yeah so all, all of the above is the answer i think all of the above or everything that you have said so far except for the still small voice that was the wrong answer um <laughs> uh so they they they've gathered in prayer you've got apostles present who who are personally commissioned by the lord jesus uh people who, you know who have visibly been you know visibly and audibly received the Holy Spirit, who have reached unanimity, who are all of one accord. And so they take that as a sign of the work of the Holy Spirit. And I personally would argue that we could say the same uh, in a in a church gathering or gathering of church uh, representatives today. You could say that, you know, we, ha- we have gathered in prayer, word of God, and, and so on and so on. We've done things, all things in accordance with God's uh, come on, therefore, we can say with confidence it has pleased the Holy Spirit too. And ideally, really, every sermon that is preached ought to, you should be, you know, every, every sermon that, that one preaches, you should be able to say this. With the caveat that if you say something that you, you can't be sure the Holy Spirit is saying it, you just say it and, and I'm just going to speak for myself. Some, some opinions of mine. Um, yeah, you, you, I must have told you the true story from uh, sort of, uh, it's a pietist uh, early 20th century Finland of the pastor who who wanted to be to be led more by the Holy Spirit. He wanted his congregation also to be more more spirit led. So he he announced to his wife on Sunday morning. This morning I'm I'm going to I, I've I've written the first half of the sermon, but in the second half of the sermon I'm going to let the Holy Spirit speak freely. I want the congregation to hear what the Holy Spirit has to say. And when he got home from church, his wife said, darling, I've always been you're a good preacher, but I never realized you're even better than the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you know, that, you know, the Holy Spirit can actually, you know, he works in the study as well as in the pulpit. And, you know, that, that when you are pre, when you, when you apply scripture and you don't stray off, uh, into, into your speculations, and you can say, well, this is, this is what the Holy Spirit has to say to you. 
you know, I've, I've heard quite a few preachers say, you know, today the Holy Spirit wants to tell us that. And if you can't say that, you could ask, well, what, what are you doing standing there then? If you can't say that with confidence, then you, you might want to question whether, whether you, you've approached the, 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 the task rightly. So it's not, we shouldn't be reading into this. I mean, in a post Azusa Street revival world, uh, you know, it's, the temptation is to, I mentioned that because I think today's an anniversary of the Azusa Street revival, the beginning of the Pentecostal movement, was it yesterday? Um, 1905, I think it was April 1905 they started. Uh, but this idea that the Holy Spirit speaks does means that I can hear a voice or something, you know, the, the, there's a sort of supernatural experience. It does happen in the Bible. We, we're going to come across that quite soon, but it doesn't always happen that way. It doesn't, and all we've had so far is lots of men talking. <laughs> Essentially, and they say it's the Holy Spirit. Um, so they're confident they're speaking, uh, in accord with the Holy Spirit. And Luke, as the author, doesn't seem to present this in any sort of ironic fashion. He doesn't lead us or cause us in any way to doubt this. Not to lay on you no greater burden these requirements. Um, we've come across them already. Abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols, from blood, and what's been strangled, and from sexual immorality. And we discussed these last time already. Um, apart from the, uh, the sexual immorality, which uh, quite possibly, not necessarily, but quite possibly, is not a reference to the a sacred commandment as such, as in to fornication and adultery and so on, but rather to uh, uh, con- con- uh, consanguinity and, and kind of, uh, if you like, in biblical terms, illicit marital relations, uh, specifically, which which uh, the, the Bible has a, had a much stricter view on this than the, uh, uh, the Greco-Roman culture did. Um, the, these are the the, uh, the the burdens that are laid on them, but notice what you say. What they say: if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. So he's not. They, they're not even laying this down as doctrine, but rather it seems seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us that this is how you go. Um, it's a very gentle. Given the huge controversy, comes a very. It's a very gentle. Uh, you could almost say, in some ways, light touch pastoral letter. You could come down with a sledgehammer and say, you know, you could do a kind of letter to the Galatians kind of thing, said, you know, you know, very, you know, we've been on the precipice of losing the gospel and, you know, we nearly became a curse, but, you know, we've pulled everybody back and here it goes. And then if anybody disagrees with this, let them be cursed. No, they just go, this is, this is, you know, we, we, without going into any of the theology, we just, you know, it, as we, as we discussed last time, you live like this and there'll be peace in the church. That's good enough. Which calls for another footnote. Are you ready? Which is that there is more to church life than doctrine. It's not enough that, uh, that something we decide that something is not wrong, not heretical or not a false practice. There's the, the whole question of order in the church and harmony in the church and what builds up not just in terms of correctness falsehood and, and truthfulness but also in terms of what actually builds up the church 
whether in terms of human relations issues of the day or psychology or all those other things are very, very important too. You know, it might not, you know, you know, it might not matter on any doctrinal or moral level whether a church is built that is Barbie pink inside and out every service. Doesn't matter. It doesn't. It doesn't mean that it doesn't matter. And you know, there there are all sorts of things that we can say. Well, it doesn't matter because the Bible doesn't say anything. So, well, the Bible doesn't say anything, which means there's not a matter of life and death or sin and truth or something like that. But it still matters. It matters a great deal. So, things that are neither commanded nor prohibited are nevertheless important. It's uh, about styles of worship or that sort of thing. Or- all sorts of things. I, I personally, I'm of the view that every church body that exists, every kind of like Jew, what you know, church jurisdiction, ought to have a fixed set of authorized forms of worship and would shouldn't tolerate any others. You agree what what your orders of service are and then everybody sticks to that. Not because the Bible demands it. Because but because if you don't do that you will never reach full unity within the church. You should be able to go from one congregation to another and know where you are said, okay, yeah, this is this is our church. And you should most certainly not give authority to local pastors to come up with their own thing. You know, I, I often say this, I trust myself to do a good job with it, but I don't trust anybody else. <laughs> right? And presumably the same is true of everybody else too. And I really wouldn't want the church to be dependent on my skill and my experience and my wisdom on this. Because I wouldn't trust it. I, I I wouldn't want the church to be dependent on my whoever my successor will be, because who knows what 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 sort of idiot gets called after I leave. And therefore, to to protect ch- the church from imaginative and and and, and uh, innovative pastors, and to protect future generations from this generation, we ought to have authorized forms of worship, because that's by far the best for the unity of the church for the preservation of godly forms of worship. It's not sinful to do something different. I'm just arguing that this is by far the best thing to do. And I'd be quite happy to say that it seems good good to the Holy Spirit and to me that this should be the case because if I look at the history of the church, that's how it's kind of gone. I have noticed in my life, whenever there is trouble in the church, very often that trouble seems to stem from worship in some way, whether it's the worship leaders or new songs versus old songs or whatever. But um, I know that musicians tend to can be quite temperamental people. Mm. What's the difference between an organist and a terrorist? Don't know. You can usually negotiate with the terrorist. <laughs> um, or the other joke, you know, well, there are three kinds of hymns. Sorry, two kinds of hymns only. The ones they don't like and the ones they don't know. <laughs> you know, there are those things. But why is it? Well, if you, you know, if you were the devil, which aspect of the life of the church would you go for hardest? I would go for worship because that's what the church is. And so that's, of course, and, and because that's what matters. Things that matter. I mean, no, I think it's, it's very, very rarely that things break up over things that nobody cares about. Unless it's the colour you paint the walls. In the... Yeah, but somebody will care about it and it becomes an issue. 
Um, and I, I will vote against Barbie Pink if, if I have to do that, you know, for a reason. But, you know, the, so it's, it is important that we, we keep these two things in mind. And that's why the church has, since Acts 15, and probably before, but Acts 15 is the better, has laid down rules and regulations that do not arise directly from the word of God, but rather from uh, the leaders of the church making rules and regulations for the good of the church, because that's what is needed at the time. In, modern, in the modern church, whether whether or not you have a black pudding or not is not going to be a church divisive issue. In the first of the first century, it most certainly was. So I'm not I'm I'm never going to promulgate a resolution that we should give up on black pudding. But there are other things I will be quite happy to promulgate in a you know put a resolution forward that isn't doesn't arise from the scriptures, but which nevertheless is necessary for the good of the church. And so you know this is this is kind of. Uh, this is the, these things are important, even though they're not, you know, first they're not first uh, kind of first degree doctrinal issues. This kind of minimalism, well, it's not in the Bible; it doesn't matter. Seemed, I mean, not only is it unwise, but it's actually unbiblical, <laughs> which is uh, ironic. I don't, I don't know if anyone wants to argue back. You know. I'm expressing an opinion here, so you, you can you can throw your yours back at me. Well, I'm I'm, I'm not going to die in the ditch over the regulative principle. So uh... I am. I, I I will I will not have it. <laughs> I will fight to the death. Not take regulative principle. Regulative principle worship. Does there, is everyone familiar with the term? You should only do in you should only worship in forms that are ex- expressly commanded in Scripture. Has one fundamental flaw in it, which is that it's no no way in Scripture is the relative principle actually established by Scripture. Um, and here we have an excellent example in Acts 15 of a something other than a relative principle. So the it's kind of the reformed, more Calvinist reformed churches that historically held to the relative principle in worship. The Lutheran Church always held. I can't remember what the what the official term for that is because it's less famous, but view that if it's if it's not prohibited it is permitted if it's for the good of the church as opposed to it's only allowed if it's commanded yes i was briefly in in germany involved with a group that would would only have unaccompanied singing because there's no they say because there's no musical instruments involved in new testament worship we shouldn't have them they would say yeah absolutely yeah yeah, it's not just yeah that was that was that was sort of church of geneva as well calvin and so on uh, already began Zwingli. It was ironic because he was actually, he was a, a, Zwingli himself was, he was, of all the reformers, he was the most musical. He was actually a, a virtually professional musician, uh, as one of, he was a very gifted person, uh, and, uh, that was one of his, uh, one of the Philistines both. And yet he banned instrumental music in the church because he's not anywhere com- uh, commanding scripture, uh, in the New Testament, that is to say. Um, of course, we could say, well, he's actually not explicitly mentioned, which is not the same thing at all. You know, should we wear clothes in church? Doesn't say anything in the Bible about that. Um, and yet we do. If it's decently in good order, it does say. Yeah, well, if you can be decent, uh, in other words, you know, I'm just making, making a silly point of this, but, um, that's, that's kind of, uh, that is, yeah. So anyway, let's, let's get back to the text. That, that was just a very extensive footnote again. 
let's let's read on uh from 30 uh to 34 5 sorry 30 35 well i can read them thank you um so when they were sent off they went down to antioch and having gathered the congregation together they delivered the letter and when they had read it they rejoiced because of its encouragement and Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Okay. What do we think of verse 34 specifically? Um, <laughs> You've got to find it in the footnotes. It's in the footnotes, okay. Uh, and it says, but it seemed good to Silas to remain there, which is found in some manuscripts, uh, in a minority of manuscripts and in a very specific clump of manuscripts. Uh, probably, uh, because, uh, they were, the distance from Jerusalem to Antioch is such that a, a round trip, if you go, in a straight line, as the crow flies, is about uh, 600 miles. And if you read this as it stands, it looks like they went there, read the letter, and went straight back again, which seemed improbable to a scribe or some scribes of the New Testament. So they added an explanation that they remained there, uh, Silas remained there rather, and then went back, I to add kind of, a bit of a gap, so it doesn't look like they, they traped 300 miles, read a letter, and then strafed home again, which seemed improbable. Of course, we're not told how they traveled. They might have traveled by ship up the coast. Or aeroplane. That they didn't do. I can be absolutely certain on that. Okay. But, uh, they, they might have done, uh, in the modern day, at least taking a train. So they get there and you see that the, again, the, the way that, you know, they delivered the letter and read it, um, and, uh, the result was joy. They were encouraged and they were encouraged by the truth. They were encouraged that they are, they could, you know, here was endorsement from Jerusalem itself, from the apostles and elders, that they truly were Christians. That was the encouragement. And they were good as they were. And then we're told Judas and Silas were themselves prophets. And so they encourage and strengthen their brothers with many words. Now, what is meant by prophet here? I don't think it would be prophesying the future. I think it's just proclaiming God's word in this sort of things of preaching. Yeah, it's a form of, uh, form of, uh, preaching. It's not gen- generic preaching, uh, because for that we have, uh, other words, but there is a uh, there's the implication here of being some a, a proclaimer of the word who has a specific gift of the spirit for it. Um, and you know, it's, it's very difficult to reconstruct uh, the kind of shape that the ministry took in the early church. I mean, it's been later on, it's been established in particular forms. You can have the the kind of the the slightly high police phone view that we have, which is there is the office of the ministry. We call everybody a pastor and they might hold a role for a while and they get 
elected out of his office and they just go back to being class. Or you could get the kind of Anglican view of bishops, uh, presbyters and deacons, um, which the Roman Catholic Church has more recently adopted. Or you can go for a kind of fuller uh, uh, late medieval uh, view where you have uh, three major offices and then four minor offices. So you had priests, deacons and subdeacons. And then you had uh, acolytes, exorcists, lectors, and oh, what's the fourth one? I can't remember now. Um, and that's what the you know ministry looks like. And and everybody, you know, they've got these seven steps, and they all have this uh, slightly different role. And only some of them have the authority, for example, to administer the sacraments, and and so on and so on. You can go straight from being a subdeacon to being a bishop. Uh, because they were major offices, but you couldn't go from being a lector to being a priest. You know, we just don't know. But you know, for the early church, we don't know exactly what the form the ministry took and the different. And and we can't always, with certainty, say what the different titles that are used. For example, in Ephesians four, when uh, he gave some you know, apostles, evangelists, prophets, pastors, and teachers, and so on. You know, we we can't say what exactly did those different offices do. What did those people, uh, what do they stand for? What, what the actual role was? You get the sense one gets from reading the Acts and the letters is that the term prophet, uh, sometimes referred to people who received prophecies in the kind of generic sense, or the more broader sense of common sense of, um, being able to tell, you know, kind of, it's like deliver direct messages from the Holy Spirit. Um, we have a couple of them, Agabus and so on. Uh, who, who get mentioned, uh, all of that's a minority thing. And then you also get the sense that the prophets are the ones who kind of go and, uh, that, that if like, uh, uh, proclaim the word, uh, of God to people without necessarily being, if you like, office holders in that congregation. So for example, when Paul writes to the Ephesians, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. He's almost certainly not referring to the New Testament and the Old Testament, uh, like we do, the prophetic and apostolic word, and the prophets being the Old Testament, the apostles being the New Testament, but rather two different kinds of office holders. Apostles who first brought the word in and the prophets who kind of proclaimed it later on, uh, or something along those lines, which is different from presbyters, who are the ones who kind of have a long-term care of the church. So it might be that they are itinerant preachers of some description. That's how the term is seemingly used uh in the early church, just post-New Testament. Um, it's very, as I said, the, the key thing is it's actually quite difficult to know, but those are some possible possible ideas. Um, and certainly here we get this thing, we say they encourage and strengthen the brothers with many words. And so they, uh, they, they, um, um, they were clearly preaching and teaching. And again, we see, by the way, here, you know, what do they do? They encourage. Many, many years ago, went to uh, lunch after church with some friends uh, and after, after a service here. And uh, we sat down to lunch and one of the friends, one, one of these people said to me, said, so how do you challenge your congregation today? And much to be disappointed, I have to say, I, I actually failed to do that at all. But I did try to encourage them. Um, you know, that the word challenge does not exist in the New Testament. In that sense. Thank you. <laughs> and then they were sent off in peace by the brothers. And that's important again. They were sent off in peace 
which is going to gather, you know, an explicit act of harmony and unity and friendship. All is well. The conflict is over. Uh, they were sent back to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So there's quite a, quite a band of preachers there. And I personally am of the view that if the church can have a whole bunch of teachers and preachers, and it's probably a good thing. I'm, I'm, I, I personally don't think that having a single, uh, you know, single pastor per congregation is the ideal. And certainly not the historic model of the church. Um, but as, as we currently stand, you don't get a choice. There, there ain't enough money for more, more of me, more than me. So we see, nevertheless, we see here that the, the, you know, the, the, the uh, conflict has been brought to perfect, if like a, 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 an ideal conclusion because the leaders of the church acted in harmony and unanimity and they were guided by the Holy Spirit to a solution that was both theologically clear and pastorally wise. And it was accepted as such. And we don't, if there were any dissenting voices, uh, Luke, it seemed good to hold the Holy Spirit and Luke, not to record. <laughs> any, anything, any further comments, questions on that? On the whole, I mean, it's, it's a big, it's a shame really that we, that I timed it so badly that we cut it in half. Um, and we, we kind of dealt, dealt with this big, but it's, uh, this big event in, in two sessions a month apart, but it's really momentous turning point in many ways for the church because at this point, you know, this, this incredibly important point of, uh, practice, which has such, uh, fundamental theological um, implications is sorted out even though it takes very many years thereafter for this to become settled that the apostles and elders spoke at Jerusalem doesn't mean that the thing went away because clearly there were plenty of people who were not satisfied and, and were not convinced and continued to teach uh, differently and hence we we get Romans we get Galatians, we get Colossians all these letters, um, or even implica- uh, some some sort of secondary kind of uh, issues in in First Thessalonians, we see that this this thing keeps keeps rearing its head and and troubling the church for a long time to come. But as I've said before, we shouldn't be too quick to think that these people were being stupid and and and, and stubborn and obtuse. But rather, this the new teaching, if you like, the the uh, the practice of baptizing Gentiles and leaving them as Gentiles was a radical, radical departure from every expectation that any Jew would have had ever. It, when um, Paul and uh, Silas went to, um, the, on their second voyage, they, they, they did repeat this letter to the churches in Galatia. And, yes. And yes. Yeah, so this, is, you know, this becomes really important. The letter was addressed to the Christians in uh, in. Antioch in Syria, I wider the wider region around Antioch and Cilicia, uh, which is where they had been before. So this is, you know, this becomes a thing. And the fact, you know, I, I would imagine that Paul kept a copy on his person wherever he went. It would be very wise of him to do so. 
And just one final thing. We've got very specific names. You know, names are named very specifically here. Uh, which would say that it's, it's of Luke's way of saying, I'm telling you this, and here are the people you can go and ask about it because they were there. You know, find yourself Judas or Silas. Which Judas? The one called Sparsabbat, that one. And, and they will tell you this, what, this is what was said. Or anybody, find anyone who was in, in, in Jerusalem and you will, you will discover that, you know, this is not just a literary creation of, of Luke. We have named witnesses. Good. Shall we finish the chapter then? <laughs> it starts really, I mean, this is another incompetent chapter division in the Bible. Uh, it really, this should be the end of the chapter. And, but, uh, it's not. So let's, let's get to the end of the chapter. So who would like to read the remaining verses for us? Please? I'll do that bit. Thank you. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Okay, thank you. Now you can see why verse 34 was introduced. <laughs> There's Silas all of, all of a sudden again, having been sent back to Jerusalem. So at some point he, he, he's, he's come and gone and he's come again. Um, when and how we don't know, but of course we have been told by now that Paul and Barnabas, uh, stayed in Antioch, and we don't know how long for. It might have been a very quite a long time. Might have been months, years. Who knows? Uh, and and there's plenty of time if life decides to make the journey. So we see that you know Paul. We see think of Paul very much as the great missionary uh, and and sort of evangelist of the early church, which he was. But his his first uh, instinct is to return to the church that established. To, that he had established already with with Barnabas and to strengthen them. You know, there's no point moving on if if you know you the work that you establish wilts behind you as you move on. As he has a uh, he has a um partial concern for them. Let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. This is before Zoom and email and even even an effective uh, postal system. So they need to go there. Um, and here's another, I, I've made reference to this before, but here's another example of where the Holy Spirit uh, takes a problem and turns it into a solution. And so, Paul and Barnabas fall out because Mark, Barnabas wants to take Mark, a relative of his, which probably doesn't make the situation any better. Uh, when last time they took Mark, Mark bailed out. Now, when Mark bailed out last time, we were simply told that he returned. Now it turns out that it wasn't Luke was being very charitable there, that this was clearly seen at least by Paul, and Paul seems to assume that Barnabas would see the same way as Mark having somehow let them down. 
So we, we're not told whether he missed his mummy or something else, but nevertheless, he clearly, Paul is not convinced that this is the, the sort of man you want to take with you. Uh, he's not reliable. All the better, therefore, that we find that later on, uh, towards the end of Paul's uh, ministry, we find that Mark is very close by. So, the, you know, this is not the end of the story at all. They were reconciled. We're not told about that, but we know that they were reconciled, which is wonderful. Uh, but look at the wording in verse 38. Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Uh, he was a kind of, he was a slur, he, like he, there was a mark against him by his own conduct. Um, and there arose a sharp disagreement. So they separate from each other. This is, uh, I think it's one of those fair, uh, this is a frank and robust exchange of views moments. And uh, we're not told which furniture, bits of furniture flew or who banged the table louder and all that. But clearly this is, you know, this is, this, this is a big crisis. These are the great, you know, these, these men have gone through quite a lot together. So there must be a very significant rift between them having, you know, been through what we've read, you know, heard, you know, risked their lives for the gospel together, having traveled, uh, probably in you know, some danger and, and certainly experienced much danger together <coughs> for them to fall out and not to continue to work together. I mean, this is not, this is not a small thing at all. I wonder, um, um, uh, Paul sort of, uh, in one, if it's the letter of Galatians, he admonishes, uh, he tells about the problem in Antioch when the Jews had gone there and uh, where P- Peter had, uh, um, sort of, um, Peter and also Barnabas had fell and, and, and were afraid of the Jews and uh, did not, um, um, is, 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 is it in the, is it in this connection? Do you think? I can't remember the details. So I wonder if there had been that kind of a niggling thing against Barnabas as well. Yes. As I think I mentioned before, the time, specific timing and how to, how to match up the accounting relations to the accounting acts is a really tricky problem. Mm. Cause you can, you can, uh, there are two different ways you can, uh, try to make these, the two fit together in timing wise. Either place in the situation Antioch as being the exact issue that occurs in Acts uh, 15 and 14 and 14 being in 15 or a separate occasion. And whichever way you go in terms of trying to fit it in with the rest of what we know and all the time and letters, uh, you solve one set of problems and create another. So it's, it's a really difficult interpretative problem. And uh, so it's hard to tell. It's possible. It is possible. That what Paul relates in Galatians, where Barnabas for a time, uh, flips on the whole question of the inclusion of the Gentiles has already taken place as well. And of course, if that is the case, that would have sown some uh, seeds of, uh, distrust already. We can't be certain. Mm. And, uh, if you, if you find a hundred scholars who say one thing, I will find you another hundred that say the other. And it's, you know, we, we, it's hard to tell. But certainly there are issues. It's not a, again, we shouldn't idealize these people as being some sort of, sort of picture book heroes. They were just as flesh and blood as you and I. And I have no doubt whatsoever from reading his letters and reading Acts of Paul was not an easy person to get on with. Makes you wonder whether there were, uh, there were two reasons why he never got married. One of which was his ministry, <laughs> another one was his personality. I don't know. Hard to tell. But you know, he's, he's clearly, 
you know, he's he's clearly uh, a proud man, an arrogant man with a temper and who's quite ready to speak, frankly. And people like that, generally speaking, tend to stir the pot, which is what you sometimes need, but it also does create friction. Yeah, he writes to the Ephesians that don't let the sun go down on your anger. So obviously, maybe <laughs> I think he meant it for himself as well. <laughs> uh, any any all honest preachers preach uh, to themselves first. Um, you know, if, if you ever want to, if you ever end up having to uh, do any sort of teaching in the church about failure, failures and, and of, of uh, Christians, and if you want to preach, if you teach well and speak in a way that engages preachers, just examine yourself and then address yourself and. There'll be lots of nodding heads in the in the congregation, um, but yeah. So you can see that this is this is a, this is actually potentially a real crisis because these are the kind of these. This is the spearhead of the of the mission to the Gentiles, and they've been through the first mission trip. They've been teaching and preaching together in Antioch for some years together. They were the envoys to Jerusalem together. They come back. They continue to teach and preach, and now they fall out with a sharp disagreement. And this, which is, you know, biblical language for a blazing row. And, um, and, and, and they literally, they, they just went, you know, they, they, they couldn't work together anymore. They could not reach unanimity, which is ironic having just had that great show of unity, uh, before over a much bigger issue of the circumcision. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. He went home, basically. He went to home territory. But Paul chose Silas, who'd managed to get back from Jerusalem again, and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Now, again, must remember Luke is on Paul's team at the time of writing. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and was commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. There is uh, nothing said here about Silas being commended by anybody to do anything. Now, whether Luke is leaving it out or whether actually Barnabas essentially took off having having lost the argument. Um, I mean, they, we get the sense, I mean, the, that Paul is by now the the one with the prestige. I mean, he does he does he does the talking already when they go together, and and so. This, this may well actually be an act of, some act of humiliation on the, for Barnabas because he, he doesn't go back to Cilicia. He goes to Cyprus. And so Paul takes up the, uh, the journey and he went through Syria and Cilicia strengthening the church. So he travels overland this time, not, not across the, but overland through, uh, if you can picture the map, but he goes up from Antioch to the kind of corner of the Mediterranean Sea and then turns left and around there. And his job then, is to strengthen the church. Yeah, uh, well, Paul in his letter to the Corinthians refers to Barnabas as well. So he he was known there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've gone. They were reconciled as well because he talks, uh, mentions Barnabas in a very friendly way. So. Oh, yeah, undoubtedly so. And But these are, you know, these, again... This is how this is very very lifelike, mm-hmm. very lifelike. Um, you know, and again, when when Luke is writing this, I, mean, I, I didn't. Uh, you might recall, but I would I would date Acts quite early uh, to the sixties, uh, while Paul is still alive. Um, so, uh, you know, 
when when but nevertheless when Luke's writing this, Paul has already written his famous letters and Luke will have been around when some of them were written. So he would have known these things. And in fact we have every reason to believe there are lots of things that Luke leaves out because he doesn't need to mention them because they're not part of the, not only because they're not central to the story, but also because his readers would have known. So he doesn't have to mention that Paul and Mark were reconciled later on because everybody knows. And how they became reconciled isn't really essential to this story that's being told. This is a different story that's being told. So there are, there are all sorts of gaps and lacunae in the, in the story, which might intrigue us, but, uh, you know, whichever, no perfectly reasonable explanation, but we don't need to know because it doesn't, you know, this is something else. Um, and, and that's where we leave this journey. So, uh, next time we'll carry on from here, but just uh, as a, as a preview, uh, in the next episode, uh, going around Cilicia, he comes back to Derby, where, where we've been before. And then that's where the journey, a journey takes a different turn. So from verse 36 of chapter 15, really, we start the whole new, uh, the second missionary journey, uh, that opens up completely new horizons. And which will uh, occupy uh, a significant por- uh, portion of the next coming chapters uh, of uh, of Acts. So that's where we have got to uh, tonight. Some time for questions and comments. I'd like to uh, ask a question. Um, you may. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I'm just trying to think how to sort of. Uh, talk about it but bearing in mind that we have our bibles and we know all about what's happened in the new testament and yet do we put things down now do we write things down um so in a hundred years time somebody might be talking about what we were doing what we were doing that was good, what we were doing that was bad. Um, does that happen? Well, there are records, not everything, obviously, but, uh, yeah, there are records of things. I mean, we have, that's why we have church historians, you know, who write, write about what happened. Now, it's not, it, it's not equivalent to what's going on here because we are not living in the apostolic era. And so if in some ways what, what's going on now is, is of a lesser significance for the whole church. But yes, there are. I mean, uh, you know, you can read about all sorts of goings on in, in the history of the church, um, in fits and starts and, and very selectively because not everything is as important. I mean, most of what goes on, I mean, we know nothing from the Bible. We know absolutely nothing about the spread of Christianity to almost anywhere except where Peter went first and then where Paul went later on. How did it, you know, by the time we get to uh, Ephesus, for example, we have a a Jewish Christian named uh, Apollos from uh, uh, Alexandria. And we know that Christianity got to Rome before Paul ever wrote to them or never ever went there. There were already Christians there. How that happened, we just don't know. We're not told. We don't have any records that survived. And likewise, we know we can, you know, you can reconstruct the life of Martin Luther and all the things that he kind of scrapes he got into and, and the whole thing in, in very fine detail. But, 
it's considerably uh, more difficult to know what was going on in sort of uh, northwestern Sweden in the 17th century. Um, just you know, it just depends on what you know where you are and what sort of things. But I suppose there's a flip side to your question, which is that uh, let's let's imagine that somebody is writing Zolzin and, and they will look at us in 100 years' time. Hopefully, that will, uh, if we think like that, we might uh, that might influence how we go about things. How would we like to be remembered? Well, I mean, even sort of since I become a member of the church, um, things have changed, you know, just in terms of um, women were not allowed to vote. Women were not allowed to go to voters' assembly. Um, all sorts of things, and they have moved on and they've changed. And just trying to think where we are in that sort of system, you know, are we able to sit down and talk with each other are we able to sort of say actually I don't like doing it this way can we try it that way you know what where are we in that sort of place well what do you think um well I don't know really I guess um we have a voters assembly um and things like that but I don't I've never heard anyone at voters assembly sort of say I'm going to be a bit silly now, but, you know, I think we all ought to wear hats again, something like that. Um, you know, we don't seem to, we seem to just carry on doing what's there. Um, and I just wondered, uh, I mean, the, the thing about the church, of course, is that, um, well, I don't, I don't know how far it was back then, um, but majority of people don't go to church don't have any um don't have any uh, don't know about god or if they do know they don't believe that's what i'm trying to say um so what's the difference um from what was happening then when even if they weren't christians they had other forms of um i don't know gods where where are we? That's a big question, but I'm kind of trying to sort of see how that fits in with what happens to us now and where we are. Um, well, it, I'm not 100% sure that I'm sure what, exactly what, it, what you're referring because there are a couple of different things there. But in terms of making decisions, for example, if anything, we, are, we have far clearer and more bureaucratic forms of decision making than ever there were. I mean, somebody was right, the history of the role of women in the ELC, they they can just, all they have to do is just take out all the minutes and resolutions of Synod every year and, and you'll get the very clear picture of how things are done. You know, we've got a very uh, very uh, sort of, uh, straightforward system uh, for that. You know, I don't particularly like, there's a slogan that comes from uh, the sort of Calvinist uh, edge of, uh, end of the Reformed um, Reformation um, which goes somewhere along like uh, like it goes like this that you know the church is uh the christian church is always reforming either there should be kind of the reformation is not just an event it's a constant state of the church um i personally don't believe so uh but uh and that's simple reformanda or whatever. that's the one yeah exactly um and it's i i can appreciate the intention behind it but i don't particularly think it's helpful but the point the point is true that the church must always constantly be looking into God's word and assess itself, just like we do individually. 
you know, we think we are all fine and we are, we're, you know, we are, we're living good Christian lives and, and everything is, and, but this is why, like the early, early, uh, early couple of first centuries of, uh, of the Lutheran church, you had these little booklets that get published regularly called Confession Mirror. And it simply to give these 10 commandments, uh, broken down into further questions. You know, have you done this? Have you done this? What about this? What about this? And just saying, look in this mirror. It's okay. If you, you know, before you start thinking about confessing your sins, let's find out what they are. And, and so this constant kind of comparing what's actually going on with what ought to be going on. And the church must be doing that also. And so, for example, Pete, another change that happened in your lifetime, which is that I imagine that when you joined the church in, um, in your childhood, uh, there wasn't a single Lutheran congregation in this country that had a weekly communion. And well, I was it, only nine years old, so I can't tell. <laughs> well, when you were 19 years old, uh, that wasn't the case either. I mean, mm-hmm. there simply wasn't the case. And there will, if you ask any pastor or any member of the church at that time, they would have been able to say, I've been Lutheran all my life and the church has never had, uh, weekly communion. But that's the, re- the reason for that, that the humans don't live long enough. If they'd been alive for 200 years, they wouldn't have been able to say that. Yeah. Uh, and so what's happened over the last 40 years or so is that this has been, you know, uh, the church has compared its practice, which it inherited from others, and compared it to what's actually in the scriptures and the confessions of that. Maybe, maybe the way that we and our fathers been doing things isn't the right way, the best way. And so the, the practice of weekly communion has made a comeback after a break of a hundred odd years. So these are these are the sorts of things. I don't know if this is answering your question at all, but no, no, I hadn't thought about it in that way. I guess I just no, just just more generally, just that you know, the the church must constantly be examining itself uh, in the light of what what we confess to be true, and say, are we actually, you know, you know, we talk a good game, are we actually uh, also playing a good game? Then I suppose synod could help there, but it seems that everything in synod is always, this is what we do here, 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 and here. And if someone stood up and wanted to change it, well, they wouldn't be allowed to anyhow, because they'd have to have put it in beforehand. Um, yeah, okay, just just sort of some thoughts that was going through my mind as we were was looking yeah. at this. I mean, it, it, well, not particularly a point. I mean, you say the example of women's suffrage in the church. Hmm. Which didn't exist and now it does. Yep. That came through Synod. Somebody brought a resolution and they got passed. And that's how it goes. I mean, the very existence of, of Synods in the way that we have them is, is a reasonable innovation because, uh, until a couple of centuries ago, if you ever got a church decision making body, there wouldn't be any lay people there at all. It was all clergy. Hmm. And that's going back like to Act 15, roughly. You know, that, that's just how things were done. And now it's done differently and, and near these things. But it's, it's, you know, the church is, 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 is not fixed in stone in a lot of things, but our confession is. Even, even our constitution, the current and future constitution says it has all sorts of things in it. And one of the clauses says that the, the you know, the, the, the article on the con- con- confession cannot be altered. You can bring a million resolutions to Synod and the confession of the church cannot be changed. The only way you can change the constitution, uh, the confession of the church is by dissolving the church altogether and re- refounding. You know, that, that thing, we, we tether ourselves to God's word and then we see, see, you know, then we work everything else out 
and often through mistakes and rediscoveries and new discoveries. Okay, just... Yep. <laughs> Good. Anything else? Anyone else? Last chance. Just, I've been thinking of Paul and his disagreement about Mark and I was, well, how in, towards the end of his life in Rome when he writes to Timothy, I mean, obviously there has been a reconciliation, but uh, it's interesting because he says in his letter to Timothy that basically people have left him and now he wants Mark to, uh, Timothy to uh, send Mark to him because he would be useful to him. This yeah. young chap who had disappointed him. So there's a wonderful how Paul had to soften quite quite a bit. Of course, Mark had of uh, course responsibility or other, but it is wonderful to 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 see that in Paul that now you know there's complete reconciliation and he would be useful to him now and actually refers to him as his co-worker. Yes. Yeah. To- yeah. So and and there's no there's no no fingers crossed or no kind of uh, no little asterisk to the footnotes there either. It's just wholehearted. Uh, yeah. to reconciliation, uh, which is, yeah, I agree with you. It is, it is, it's heartwarming. Actually, one thing that, that was, was sort of suggested to me was that, um, the fact that the Bible is actually quite candid about all the disagreements and failures and various other things is a sign that it's not just a man-made document. It's a man-made document we're trying to sort of, um, uh, jolly things up a bit and leave, leave out the more embarrassing things. Whereas the Holy Spirit records everything in truth. Oh yes. Oh yes. There's so much in the Bible that is, if you were trying to create a varnished version, you would leave out. I mean, the whole resurrection out of itself is just, you know, the whole, whole suffering, the, uh, suffering of Jesus and, and, and the resurrection, everything around there is, you know, it's just embarrassing. It just happens to be true. Women at the tomb, really? Um, you know, you would, you, you wouldn't tell any of this. You wouldn't make this, if you were making it up, you know, if this is the polished version, I'd hate to see what the unpolished version is because this is quite rough already. Yeah. yeah. Good. Let's stop there. Uh, our time's up. Uh, really nice to, uh, have these discussions again. Uh, we will continue, uh, next Thursday at the same time, same address. Uh, but for now, let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit who has revealed to us uh, the truth of your word, for the gift of faith, and for the continual testimony of your apostles and the generations of Christians who have gone before us. Grant us your grace that we too hold on to the truth of the gospel so that we are able to pass it on to coming generations. Give uh, success to the preaching of your gospel amongst us and throughout the world. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.